0: The so-called prosperity gospel is a growing threat on the mission field. What is it? And where do we also find it at home in our own backyards?
1: The prosperity gospel is actually pretty hard to define. But I would say that the heart of it, though, is valuing the gift above the giver. And you can see that in, in any kind of different context. Big, beautiful building, massive, expansive parking lot. They support missionaries and and all these things, and they have a sound statement of faith. But it's very possible that a large number of people in that congregation actually live out the prosperity gospel, whether they know it or
0: not. Sean Demaris talks about the biblical gospel versus the American gospel on today's show. But first, a message from ABWE President Paul Davis. ABWE missionaries are coming beside the lost and the hurting around the world. And through the Global Gospel Fund, they're pulling people from the darkness and training them as leaders. They're planting churches, and they're even beginning their own missions movements. You may already support one ABWE missionary. Would you consider a gift to the Global Gospel Fund to support all 1,000 of our missionaries? Thank you for that. Become a partner today at abwe.org slash fund. Welcome to the Missions Podcast, the show that explores your hard questions on missions, theology, and practice to help goers think and thinkers go. I'm Alex Kochman, Director of Advancement and Mobilization for ABWE International, joined by Scott Dunford, lead church planter for Redeemer Church in Fremont, California, West Coast mobilizer for ABWE and future Supreme Court justice. Did I hear that correctly or am I <laughs> mistaken about that, Scott? If, if nominated, I will serve.
2: Uh, <laughs> you don't have to be a lawyer. So, yeah, I, I think
0: I can do it. It, it. Perhaps I should just refer to you henceforth as SWD. Um, you can refer to me as AJK. I also introduced myself um, wrongly. Um, I think pretty soon here I'm be transitioning into a new role with ABWE. As director of advancement and communications and uh, it's a privilege to uh, oversee the, the blog a lot of the digital content that we put out for abwe as well as this show scott you and i haven't chatted in a while maybe we're due for a life update we had a baby yes which is cool not alex and i but you and hannah uh yes good call <laughs> yes calvin alexander Kochman. which by the way my grandfather's name is alexander so i'm not you know completely self-obsessed was born at 11 pounds, six ounces. So, Man, big yeah, kid. He, I know he's about to get red shirt. Actually, wife. I just yeah. got a call. Yeah, seriously. And it was it was a challenging process. Um, it was emotional and it 20 hours of labor followed by a C-section. And so oh. but praise God that mom and baby are both here and both healthy. And um, did you get an
2: epidural, Alex?
0: I did. Um, it wasn't very effective, though. I asked for one when my kids
2: were born. I never got one. I asked.
0: I, I asked actually for them to put me <laughs> under all, all together. And they, they didn't do <laughs> that. But, um, you know, Scott, perhaps this is as good a segue as any, that life is full of suffering. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Isn't it? And, oh, man. Um, especially as we talk about the Christian life and the missionary life in particular. You know, we've only addressed the issue of the prosperity gospel once on this show. That was in a conversation with Conrad Mbewe. And I'm really excited for the guest that we're having today, who I first
2: saw through the American gospel documentary was put out. Yeah. So we have Sean DeMars. He's a father, husband and artist. So uh, he served in the military and then he and his family spent three years to reach an unreached people group in Peru and they served and ministered there. And now uh, he is the pastor at Sixth Avenue Community Church in Decatur, Alabama. And welcome, Sean. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I especially want to know, are you a recording artist? Are you a pottery artist? Tell us a little (laughs) bit about that. And then uh, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your story in Peru and why that led you to start writing and speaking on some of the things you've written regarding suffering.
1: Yeah, hey guys. Uh, So the artist thing, uh, (laughs) that's from, again, a very long time ago uh, believe it or not, I used to be a rapper. Uh, I know that the people listening to this podcast
2: just by You got the name for it. it. Yeah, yeah. Sean DeMar. Yeah, man.
1: Uh, I was a Christian rapper. And, uh, right before we went to the mission field, I had to, and by the way, if you hear that ding, I cannot figure out how to turn that off on my computer. So you may just be getting <laughs> dinged throughout this episode. Sorry. Okay. Uh, but right before we went to the mission field, uh, my, uh, my little rap career was beginning to pick up steam and we had to make a decision. Did I want to be in music or did I want to uh, be a missionary? And so I uh, left the music behind and went to the mission field. So I guess I got to update that bio. These days, uh, I'm not much of an artist at all. But uh, yeah, I serve as the pastor of Sixth Avenue Community Church, which uh, about a month ago was actually Sixth Avenue Church of God. Uh, But we've been in a a three-and-a-half-year church revitalization process with this church. And the last stage of that revitalization process was to move the congregation out of the Church of God denomination uh, in order for us to become an independent church. We're essentially a Reformed Baptist, but just to become an independent Baptist church. And so that was three-and-a-half years in the making, and the Lord was very kind to allow us to do that here a couple of weeks ago. So, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and you talk about your missionary experience in Peru and your view of the Christian life in the American Gospel documentary. If people haven't seen that, I believe the website's American Gospel Film. We'll put that in the show notes. Uh, But one of the things in that same vein, you wrote a few years ago a plea for Americans to stop sending prosperity teaching, excuse me, prosperity preaching missionaries to Peru. Uh, You put out an urgent plea on Nine Mark saying, stop sending your prosperity preachers to Peru. So, what is it that you saw there that caused you to make such an impassioned plea? Is that just something you saw in Peru? Did you see that across Latin America?
1: Yeah. So, I think uh, when Jonathan Lehman and I were discussing how to go about that article, uh, I wrote it from the angle of a missionary in Peru, but Peru can just sort of be the avatar for anywhere that you're sending missionaries, right? Like the idea is stop sending missionaries to the mission fields uh, who are preaching a false gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the prosperity gospel is probably the most prominent false gospel that missionaries are having to deal with, especially in the third world. Um, when they when we talk about, uh, you know, the growth of Christianity in Africa and certain parts of Asia and South America, what most people don't know is a lot of that is uh, pure word of faith, prosperity gospel growth, which is, is not really any, growth at all mm. um and in many parts of the world it's inoculating people to the gospel in the same way that like southern genteel uh, uh pharisaical christianity uh inoculated people here in the uh-huh. south in the bible boat where i live right uh-huh. so um the, the reason why we wrote that is because uh it's just it's just bad and, and there are so many churches in america that have you know if you look at their statement of faith. Uh it looks solid. they seem evangelical you You talk with them, you listen to their sermons. It's well within the the bounds of what we would consider uh evangelical preaching and teaching and stuff. But when it comes to sending missionaries to the mission field, it's like all discernment drops to absolute zero right mm, right you're You're pumping money into uh into these people and their ministry, and you really don't know anything about them. They come to your church, they tell you stories they They show you a slideshow and it looks like they're doing a whole bunch of good things for all these really poor people in these really far away places. And you just dump a bunch of money into their pockets. Mm -hmm. But what if these people are, you know, traveling sea and land just to make people twice the sons of hell that they are, you know, so that's, that's what compelled us to write. And yeah, I did encounter it. I ran into it a lot down there. Actually, I would say I probably spent just as much time, Uh, trying to combat false gospels and false doctrines, particularly of the prosperity gospel variety, as I did evangelizing and trying to strengthen the church that was already there.
2: So help us by defining prosperity gospel. Um, You know, I think we all, uh, you know, recognize, you know, it when we see it kind of in its most extreme, you know, forms, whether that's, you know, um, you know, copeland or uh you know some some of the things where hey send me a hundred dollars in seed money and god's going to give you a hundred thousand dollars back and you know if you, everything's going to be good in your life if you listen to joel olstein you know god wants to give you your best life now we we recognize that but is it always as clear cut as you know an explicit message of god wants you to be rich or uh or that kind of a statement. um, Can it be more subtle than that? Is it always coming from the charismatic uh, side of things? Or have you seen it even manifested maybe even accidentally or just by way of American culture uh, from even our Baptist or more reformed missionaries? Mike McKinley
1: and I are writing a book for Nine Marks right now on the prosperity gospel. Mm. uh, And and one of the things that we found as soon as we got into it is that the prosperity gospel is actually pretty hard to define um, because it's kind of like the Voltron of heresies. You know, it's, it's this heresy and that heresy and, and this heterodox teaching and that heterodox teaching and, uh, and this insidious uh, Christian practice kind of all rolled up into one. Uh, So in the book, what we do in the first chapter is we actually look at different elements of the prosperity gospel. So rather than try to to define it in like one or two sentences, we try to get people to see like, wherever you see these elements, there the prosperity gospel is. And that's Hmm. uh, a bunch of different things. Uh, For example, you know, uh, elevating the gift above the giver. That's kind of the heart of the prosperity gospel, right? But then there's other things like if you're in a church where they tend to avoid suffering Uh, you know, language of suffering that's explicitly promised to Christians in the Bible. And they only tend to promise on, uh, focus on promises of, of, uh, material blessing. Um, if, uh, yeah, so there's, there's all these different, uh, aspects of the prosperity gospel, but I would say that the heart of it though, is, um, valuing the gift above the giver. And you can see that in in any kind of different context. Uh, so w- what we say in this book is you should really think about it more like a spectrum. So if you, mm. if you, if you have in your mind's eye, a spectrum uh, on the very far right side of that spectrum, you have the Kenneth Copeland's and the so on and so forth. Right. And then maybe one notch down from that, Joel Osteen and Joyce Meyer, and then maybe one notch down from that, you have the, the local uh, prosper what I call prosperity gospel light churches in your city that don't necessarily say like, give me money and God will bless you. But it's all about, you know, Jesus just wants you to experience the fullness of the good life here and now. And if you just will follow him faithfully, he'll give mm. it to you that kind of thing. And then, and then, you can kind of keep cranking down to the left a little bit, you know, that's probably where, uh, Steven Furtick and, and a lot of these new squishy mm. popular preachers would fall. But then you can go all the way down to the far left side of the spectrum. And there you would have, uh, maybe your local reform Baptist church, uh, which has, uh, you know, a big, beautiful building, massive expansive parking lot, uh, you know, beautifully kept grounds. And, and you know what? They preach the same gospel as us, praise God. And a lot of good gospel work happens there. And we think they're a true church and they support missionaries and, and all these things. Uh, but it's very possible, and they have a sound statement of faith, you know, but it's very possible that the, a large number of people in that congregation uh, actually, live out the prosperity gospel. So their orthodoxy may be sound, but their orthopraxy m- may, in fact, uh, be living out that false doctrine, whether they know it or not. Mm. They they avoid mm-hmm. suffering. They uh, are refusing to to give Jesus uh, all of their treasure, and, and and you know so on and so forth. So yeah, you can see it in in a hundred different ways.
2: Well, and I wonder too if we can just subtly communicate that you know um, you know through. I've wondered this, like when a, when someone walks into uh, a church where everything's gilded and the pastor's wearing, you know, the nicest suit imaginable and uh, does that, I wonder if that subtly communicates that same message, you know, and I realize like there's, there's a fine line there between, Hey, we want to look our best and give our best to the Lord. But I wonder if on the other side of that, there could be some miscommunication even about what we expect to happen as a result of our faith.
1: I think you're right. Uh, I do want to be careful, like like you obviously want to be careful. There are yeah. a lot of non sinful, non prosperity. You know, uh, you it you could you could dress like that and have a nice building for a whole bunch of different good reasons, yeah, right? Um, but I think it's it's given the what Jesus says about the danger of money in our souls, I think it's always wise that if if even for good reasons we have those things, we remain we maintain a healthy level of suspicion of ourselves skepticism you know always checking and evaluating our hearts uh so like for example me and my wife we both grew up very very poor and now we're not so poor compared to a lot of people we are and as a a pastor of a 50 member church i don't make a lot of money but i think we're doing Mm -hmm. pretty okay and uh and i don't think that you know we have we have the house we have or you know, the, the savings account that we have for any sinful reasons because of idolatry or anything. But we do stop and ask ourselves every so often, you know, Hey, are we, you know, has money become our God? Are we serving two masters? Let's make sure that we're being as generous as we can possibly be. And, you know, just always kind of checking on ourselves to make sure we haven't uh, begun to to drink the Kool-Aid.
0: Right. So Sean, one of the things that we've talked about often on this show is the problem that happens in the realm of missions is out of sight, out of mind, so we may yeah. ha- we might have certain convictions here stateside about how we want the preaching and the doctrine to look in our own churches in our own midst, uh, but it's it's harder to instill that on the mission field and with the missionaries that we support because of that separation. There, right? There's sometimes less accountability, less communication in general. Sometimes people can intentionally misrepresent themselves. So, do you think that this problem's worse on the mission field? Uh, obviously, we see you know this idea of of prosperity thinking wherever you are on that spectrum. Um, infecting our churches is that worse on the mission field, and if so, why?
1: It it could have the potential to be worse. Uh, I can only speak to my experience, which is is very limited. I I would just say that in general, it's best practice to have very close relationships with the people that we're either sending to the mission field or supporting on the mission field there's a a a kind of wide net approach to to missions fundraising and mission support uh that goes on in in the American church right now that just doesn't allow for us to uh have a close connection you know it allows missionaries to be out of sight very easily for us no matter how many update letters they send us via Mailchimp every month right, right. um so uh i I know of a church that they have a commitment that they're only going to support like five missionaries. You know, they, they could support a hundred missionaries with like a hundred dollars a month, that kind of a thing. Uh, but mm-hmm. probably not a hundred, but but uh, they've made the decision to only support five missionaries and they want to support them with uh, a quarter of their budget. So it's like, you're tethered to us in a good way and we're tethered to you in a good way. And, and we're going to make sure that... Uh, that we know you in your life and that we're helping you watch your life and doctrine. And we're just going to be a part of, of this mission in a way that's more substantial than uh, you'll have a check in the mail. And I think that kind of thing you don't have to do it exactly like that, but that kind of mentality that keeps missionaries closely connected to local churches mm. is the kind of thing that prevents uh, the issue that you're talking
0: mm. about. That's a good word, and we want to get deeper into what is the real gospel, how does that compare to the American dream, and what does that all mean for the missionary life? We're going to get into that
2: next after this break with Sean DeMars. Hi, I'm Scott Dunford, and I'd like to share with you about a new nonprofit ministry established to help churches, Christian schools, and other ministries protect children and prevent abuse. Rich Hemar from Church Law and Tax states that the number one reason that drives churches to court is child sexual abuse. I can't think of anything more devastating to these lives, their families, and our witness before a watching world than sexual abuse that takes place in ministry. The traumatic impact often leaves the vulnerable not wanting anything to do with God or his people. Furthermore, as ministry leaders, our efforts toward evangelism, discipleship, and spiritual formation are not only neutralized, but shattered. Evangelical Council for Abuse Prevention was formed last year to help ministry leaders understand the complexities of child protection and abuse prevention. They are establishing standards and an accreditation program that will help verify that appropriate measures are in place at your church or ministry. Learn more about them and their good work at AbusePrevention.org. Find a helpful and free assessment tool to help you see how you measure up in this area. Go to AbusePrevention.org and click on the link for this resource assessment. Evangelical Council for Abuse Prevention. Pray for them and follow along for this accreditation program coming soon.
0: Brooks Busser, president of Radius International. I am here with Mark Dever, senior pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist and president of Nine Marks. When you go to a culture that's a different language than yours, you're ending up in a kind of majority language that's been reached. And there are other peoples still more hidden and it's those people who are often almost entirely unreached. And they take more cross-cultural effort is there a way we can better train people to have more realistic expectations of what life is like in the kind of two steps away from my culture and be able to sustain family life with its normal difficulties there so that there can be a long years and or even decades long witness in that culture. And it seems like Radius is set up to provide that training. Radius is about reaching unreached people groups go to RadiusInternational.org. RadiusInternational.org. We're back with Sean DeMars, pastor at Sixth Avenue Community Church. And uh, Sean, we are really interested in diving into this topic a little bit more about your experience in Peru. So how did your suffering as a missionary shape your understanding of the true gospel over and against a prosperity gospel?
1: You know, what's interesting is I had come out of the prosperity gospel and spent a couple of years growing in, in my knowledge of the faith and, you know, uh, having to shake off some of the rust uh, from my time there in in that uh, false church, false gospel. And then I went to the mission field, and I, and I had the right theology about suffering, but it was funny. It still wasn't really real to me, you know. Uh, there was something about being going through it there in the mission fields that made me realize like, yeah, like, so, so I I think I could say that Christ had called me to suffer for the sake of his name. But when I was lying there with malaria, wondering if I was going to live, uh, that, that, that beautiful butterfly of an idea became like a wasp, you know, <laughs> that was stinging me. And, and I had to really ask myself if I, if I really believe this, you know, it's one thing to, to read it in a systematic theology and to type out a little blog post about it and, you know, all this other stuff, but that's another thing to actually really live through it. So I think what I experienced in the mission field was, uh, yeah, man, just, a a trial by fire, a solidification. And I I won't get into the various ways that we suffered because it's uh, probably boring and not really much compared to what a lot of our brothers and sisters have been through. But I I will say that our family went through a lot uh, for the three and a half years that we were down there. And uh, it it really just uh, made us believe what we knew to be true in a different way.
2: So h- how do you see prosperity preaching in the American church? Do you do you see that also growing or is that something that maybe it's had its day and it's starting to to fade back? Because I mean, there's there's guys like us that I mean I'm I'm happy in my little uh you know my, my little bubble here in California. There's not a lot of Christians around me. I'm really not paying attention as much. I'm trying not to pay too much attention to what's going on <laughs> on evangelical Twitter and whatever else. Right. Uh so so, so what, do you, what, do you, what, are you, what are you seeing as you're getting involved? I mean, I'm sure being in the documentary and some of the writing you're doing is kind of exposing you to, to the nooks and crannies of what's going on in American faith. Yeah,
1: so I would say that certain kinds of prosperity gospel are growing in America. Um, remember the spectrum from, from earlier in the episode? Yeah. Uh, what's interesting, um, let me see how I can say this. So uh, I'm gonna bring Trump up. Uh, just because I want to bring a little bit of controversy
2: to, to this ministry. <laughs> but Breaking news. We need to have like a flashing sound or something so people can wake up and start listening yeah. again.
1: Trump, Trump. <laughs> uh, so what's interesting, whether you uh, agree with or support uh, every decision that his administration has or hasn't made, uh, what's interesting is that he does a very good job, uh, and his administration does a very good job of trying to keep their finger on the pulse of their base. Mm okay? He knows that he has this base. That's the base that got him elected. It's the base that'll get him reelected. And they do a very good job of keeping their finger on that pulse. And they, you can see them calibrating. You can see uh, the Trump administration adjusting fire whenever they feel like they've slightly missed the mark with their base or making calculated decisions policy wise to try to strengthen their base and so on and so forth. Well, I think the same thing is true with these prosperity preachers. They know that they don't stand on the solid ground of God's word, the faith once and for all delivered to the saints they they and whether whether they're cognizant of this knowledge or not at some level they know that they live on the acceptance of their viewers. Are mm. people buying into what we have to say right. and uh and I think uh a lot of what's interesting is that a lot of the big dogs in the prosperity gospel world. Are are calibrating. They're adjusting fire because mm. they are starting to perceive that amongst uh, amongst the the American populace in in particular, but even broader than that in general, uh, a lot of the stuff that they're selling is people are, don't want to buy it. You know, and uh, mm. they you know they they are starting to be seen as the snake oil salesmen that they are, and so you have guys coming out and making these grandiose. R- professions of repentance, and mm. which by the way, they tend to do every like five or six years. Yeah. But I think you're starting to see an uptick in that. So I think there's a, so all of that to say, uh, I think there's a certain brand of the prosperity gospel that's actually diminishing, but I think it's just taking on a, a, a different form. It's, it's kind of like Marxism, you know, Marxism had a sort of original like very narrow definition but what it does is when it goes to different parts of the world and interacts uh syncretistically with other ideologies, uh, ideology mm-hmm. worldviews it kind of gloms onto that and takes on that shape in that form so marxism looks one way in communist russia it looks another way in the third world countries of africa it looks a very different way in south america and it looks an even more different way still here in uh, the United States of America when it when it tries to manifest itself here, and I think the same thing is true of the prosperity gospel. Mm. It can, just, in order to survive, it it, it can very much shape shift. So I think that's that's what we're seeing happen right now.
0: And that is fascinating because yeah, you do see these alleged you know sort of repentance and you know Todd White being one of those recent ones. We certainly pray that that's genuine. But, but that is fascinating. You know, syncretism happens not just between religions, but even between these different perversions of Christianity that the prosperity gospel is. And so uh, let's shift to something that I think is inside our political vocabulary, and that's the American dream. A lot of people have contrasted that with the missionary call. Books like Radical that would say, well, that's not the Christian calling. So depending on how you define that, do you think the concept of the American dream is something that could be rescued or is that completely antithetical to the missionary call? How, how do you parse that out?
1: Yeah. So um, like everything else in these conversations, definitions matter, uh, which makes for really boring conversations. That's why no one ever <laughs> wants to stop and define their terms. You know, like right. what when I say justice, here's what I mean. What do you mean when you say justice? Uh, sa- same thing with the American dream. So if by the American dream, you mean, uh, get lots of money and, and live the most comfortable life possible, then, then yeah, I don't think that that's redeemable. And I don't, I do think it's antithetical, uh, to the Christian life. But if by the American dream, you mean, uh, you know, faithfully serving your God and your, uh, your neighbors and in some sense, your country and, uh, and, you know, prospering as you do so, I don't think that's necessarily antithetical. You know, just for an example, like we we say that owning a home is like such a big part of the American dream. That's actually not really historically the way that people thought about that. Really, the, the big dream was that you could have a job where you could work hard enough, where you could save enough money to have a down payment to get a bank loan approval to purchase a home, Right. <laughs> So uh, I think in the, in the first example I give of just owning a home, that's kind of like the, 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 the no, no version of the American dream. But like the second one, I think that makes a lot more sense. So for example, uh, I grew up very poor, like I I told you guys already. And, uh, and now me and my wife live in a very decent neighborhood and uh, we have a decent house and we have two old uh, beat up cars, but they're paid off. You know, and our kids go to a good school, and and they play safely in our nice front yard, and they jump on the trampoline, and like I don't think any of that's bad. I think all of it's good, and I won't let anybody like guilt trip me over giving my family uh, these these good things. Yeah. Um, and 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 it's important to remember that the American dream. See, it's important to remember that the the call to suffering that Jesus calls us to, it takes various and sundry forms. You know, we go through suffering in our sanctification experience as the Lord draws the, the dross out of us with the, with, with his fires, uh, we're called to in some ways endure suffering for Christ's namesake, but that even that just, there's, that will look one way in our country in our time. and It'll look a different way in communist China. Right. So, um, I, I that's a very long winded way of, yeah. Saying, it, yeah, it doesn't have to be antithetical. Uh, but I've, again, I think a healthy dose of suspicion it's, like books like Radical, so I love David Platt. I love that book. I the Lord actually used that book early in my Christian walk to spur me on sort yeah. of the mission field. So I can I can tell you that like the Lord used that book in my life. I went back and read it again recently, and I was actually like, Ooh, I don't know if I agree with this, and I don't agree with that. Like I wish He would have used more nuance here and there. But I right. still think it was good that He put that book out. It's good for those kinds of books to be out there in the Christian ether just to always keep us on our toes, to always remind us to make sure that we're not uh, succumbing to the American dream, the bad yeah. version.
0: Well, yeah, and, and on that, you know, let, let me throw something out there and you guys can both interact with this. But one of the challenges is we live in a culture that is extremely risk averse and is extremely suffering averse. Um, one of our sponsors on the show, Radius International, we love that they train missionaries to expect suffering. Right. Uh, Scott, I remember when you and I, you know, stepped into one of their classrooms last year and uh, everybody's got um, filling up the afflictions of Christ on their desk. That's awesome. We need more of that in the American church. At the same time, we can oversimplify that into suffering for its own sake, not in view of eternity, not suffering for the gospel, uh, but just roughing it. And uh, something that I'm concerned about, we just think, well, I'm being more spiritual if I'm depriving myself of this, that or the other. And the problem with that is if I'm not laying up wealth to serve my church, to serve my community, to send missionaries, to support missionaries financially, to give generously to others, right? Like there's a lot of good that I can do if I'm able to hold those things in balance. But if I just hang on to, you know, the nobility of just having less for its own sake, I'm actually not going to be able to love my neighbor
2: as effectively. Uh, What do you guys think about that? I, I do think that we really struggle with this in America. I mean, because of, because of our wealth, right. And, and if not because of our wealth, because of, you know, the access we have to wealth. And I, I think it's hard for pastors. I, I, you know, I think a lot of pastors, you know, because so many start out on the brink of poverty or even are living on the brink of poverty, it's hard to, to not get our eyes off of these things. And, um, and, and it's, it's very, it's very easy for us to watch television and see the commercials or to look at our neighbor and try to keep up with the Joneses. And before we know it, you know, we're, we're starting to look over our shoulder at the next ministry or look over the fence at the next opportunity. And we've, you know, we've really started taking our eyes off of ministry and really started thinking primarily about, about finances. So, um, yeah, I, I think that we have the, because it's just in the seeds of our heart. And, uh, and those are just sinful tendencies. We have to continue to be fighting and rooting out. Sean, what's the, you,
1: you know, what's interesting is that when Jesus was teaching about these things, he was talking to people who were substantially less wealthy than we are. Right. If you understand wealth to not just be a measure of how much money you have in the bank account, but, uh, you know, your access to medical care and the amenities that you, you know, uh, Americans today, that that the poorest American is wealthier than the the greatest king in in all of history up until you know, like a couple hundred years ago, and maybe not even that. So uh, I just think if if what Jesus had to say about the dangers of money was true to these people in this culture where they just were not very wealthy, then how much more danger are we in? in the most affluent country at the most affluent time in the history of the world.
2: Mm.
1: You know, so it's, it's a very real danger. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah we can't excuse ourselves too well, quick. Yeah. And we live in a culture that really says, Hey, this is what virtue looks like. You know, I mean, again, coming back to our political figures, how many times do they get put up even and even good Christian folks go, well, I I know that that guy's uh, good because um, because he's, he's, he's a successful billionaire, you know, like he obviously knows how to run things. He's a billionaire. So like by the fact that you're a billionaire in America means that there's a virtue to maybe not your character, but at least to your savvy and wisdom and knowledge. Right. So
0: we, well, and, and we're guilty of doing the same thing that the Jews in Jesus day did because the old Testament law, you know, there are principles there and in the proverbs of obeying God, does overall generally tend to lead towards blessing and sometimes physical blessing. Right. And so, but what they did was they took that and they ran with that and they equated that into, all right. If you're wealthy, therefore you're righteous. And if you're poor, you did something wrong. And we can do that. I think uh, not even knowing it consciously ourselves that we're, we're doing that we can tend to associate prestige with righteousness. Hmm.
1: Well, I, I think one of the ways that you see that played out in the local church is, you know, the the guy that you choose to be an elder, you choose you choose him to be the elder because he seems to have his stuff together in like his professional life and, and so on and so forth. And that just it's just it's just not good, man. You know, I mean, you obviously don't wanna have an elder who doesn't know how to manage mm. his household well, which includes his finances. He needs to be able to oversee that sort of thing. But um, like mm. it, in the life of the church. You can tell that people have kind of bought into that idea when they look for leaders in a church, which I understand the Bible to say that elders should be in a congregational ministry. But even if you're in a church where you have like a pastor and deacons, if if you're just looking for the most successful people in your church to be deacons instead of the most qualified, character qualified right. men, the most holy men, the most godly men uh then uh yeah you've uh you've misunderstood how this whole thing is supposed to work and and when you when you work that into the DNA of your church through how you structure the polity of your church uh either officially or you know uh implicitly uh then you're that's what you're role modeling for the Christians in your church, so people just come to think that that's normal,
2: you know so talking about pastors and missionaries how how do you advise them or encourage them to uh, to be able to spot prosperity preaching either, you know, on the mission field that they go visit or probably even more importantly in the missionary context that they have, you know, I mean, when they're meeting missionaries and they're coming to speak at their churches or, um, when, you know, they're interacting with them or even when they're coming out of their churches, uh, how can they spot that and what can we do to stop it?
1: Yeah. So two things, one, um, I would go back to what I said about the first chapter from our book kind of walk through the 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 key elements of what the prosperity gospel is and I just want people to, to have antennas for that right so um, even if you can't articulate the finer points of it I just want you to have antennas so that when when someone comes along and says something funky you recognize it right but if, if particularly pastors and missionaries uh you know, brothers, if you're, if you're a pastor, or a missionary, you should have a level of discernment where you can recognize the prosperity gospel. I, I really shouldn't have it to be, uh, teaching you how to recognize a false gospel. That's kind of what your role is in the church. You're a shepherd. <laughs> you know, so, uh, then that's no, not to say that men haven't been put, put in positions where like, Oh yeah, I just didn't have discernment. The Lord has been kind to open my eyes now. Can you help me walk through that? Well, sure. Yeah, I will. Right. Um, And then the second thing is, uh, I think, I think we're a lot of people, you know, we're relational beings and that's good. But what that means is for a lot of people, the biggest issue that they have is not necessarily calling the prosperity gospel wrong. It's, it's, uh, they struggle with calling people false teachers, especially when they have a relationship with them and they see them doing a bunch of good things and helping the poor and. And I've heard him preach sermons where he didn't say any of that, and it sounded like he was preaching the same gospel as me. And so trying to kind of trying to put put people in their ministry through a filter and trying to discern whether or not they actually are false prophets and false teachers is really, really difficult people for people. Mm. So we actually have a whole chapter in the book about that. Um we, we do it, we spend a lot of time in Second John, uh, where Second John talks about, you know, false teachers who come in among you and you know, what's really interesting there is that John doesn't tell you to evaluate their heart. You know, he doesn't tell you that you need to have a, a working relationship with them in order to assess whether he doesn't tell you to see if they really were trying to do good things. But, they, were you know, at the end of the day, you just assess the teaching. Yeah, You assess the preaching. Yeah. In, in the same way that uh, if someone breaks into my house in the middle of the night, uh, you know, I'm not going to sit him down and say you know like hey like is everything okay what's going on in your life that led you here you know i'm going to grab my gun <laughs> and i'm going to protect my wife and kids and uh in the same way if if a if a false preacher or teacher is coming into the church our first priority should be the glory of god the protection of the gospel the the good of the sheep of the church and so that means that uh we just have to objectively evaluate the ministry of these false teachers and not necessarily overly concern ourselves with their heart or, or, or anything like that. Now, if you do have that opportunity, great. I'm actually building a relationship with a guy here in our, our city who I will not name in case anybody from our city uh, hears this podcast, um, who I think is a false teacher. Uh, I I know he's a false Mm -hmm. teacher. um, And I've told him that. And he, for whatever reason, wanted to continue to talk with me. So I'm building a relationship with him. But you have to understand just how rare that is. You know, it's just a rarity. So if I wait to have a relationship uh, with every person who comes preaching a false gospel, I'm just, I'm never going to do my job as a shepherd, right?
0: As far as discerning some of these things too, to, to backtrack real quick as we wind down, Something that we also have to be aware of is we ne- we may not intend to bring a prosperity message and we might bring it accidentally. Something that we've talked about a time or two on this show is uh, there's parts of West Africa where medical missionaries can come in preaching a, a, a generally biblical gospel and having every good intention. But the medical work that they're doing and the fact that they're saying things like, hey, we're telling you about the great physician, his name is Jesus, um, and we also want to heal you and give you this medical care. Sometimes that's understood, especially in a context of traditional religion, um, as saying, if you pray this prayer and accept Jesus as your savior, you're gonna get healed physically. Even when it's not intended in that way, so we have to be really careful uh, that some of these things, even when we think we're using so much nuance um and and communicating with clarity, they don't always come through cross culturally uh, but you mentioned the book that you guys are writing, so first, what resources do you recommend? how can people get a hold of you uh, but then also, when should we expect that book coming out through nine marks that you're working on?
1: Yeah, so as far as uh books that I recommend, we actually did this book because and and by the way. Uh, <laughs> I didn't really plan on th- – this is not like uh, let's talk about this Nine Marks book time,
0: but, but – uh, No, no, you're good. Go ahead, promote. <laughs> we, we, yeah. we welcome we, it. We love it.
1: Shameless self-promotion. Uh, Go for it. No, uh, we, we actually wrote this book because we felt like there was uh, a real lack of, of literature yeah. out there. So there's a really good book called Health, Wealth, and Happiness by two Southern guys. Uh, but it's really academic. And to be honest with you, it's just really dry. I I don't, sometimes I think like theologians are in a competition to see who can write the most boring books. It's the only way to pass
2: these seminary classes is to write like that. I
1: I know, man. (laughs) Uh, In contrast, you read like Michael Reeves, his book on the Reformation, and it's like thrilling from beginning to end. And I'm like, yes, more books like this. Mm -hmm. Um, But anyways, uh, and and then you have maybe on the more popular side, the really good book by like Costy Hinn, uh, Benny Hinn's nephew that yeah. he has, but that's really just detailing his experience and as and as entertaining and insightful as that is it's it's not really in, instructive in the way that we uh think that there should be a book out there that that helps people. so what we're trying to do with this book is give a serious theological uh under we're trying to help people get a theological understanding uh, of the prosperity gospel, how to think about it, how to interact with it, how to critique with it, how to evangelize people, uh, who believe it, um, uh, how to make sure that you haven't fallen prey to a more insidious version of it, that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But we want it to be, uh, uh, serious, but also accessible. We want this to be like the kind of book that like, uh, if, if a member of my church comes to me and says, Hey, my cousin believes the prosperity gospel and uh i don't really know how to talk to her about it this is the book we want to put into their hands or if you have a coworker who you know you sneeze and your coworker says you know oh you better not claim that you know <laughs> this is the kind of book that we would <laughs> like for you to be able to feel comfortable giving your coworker right um so yeah when is that going to come out uh man i guess whenever we finish <laughs> it, uh Uh, I I think it should be out by fall 2021. So uh, anybody out there who cares about this, just be praying that uh, we'd be able to finish writing the book well and that it would uh, uh, make its way through the press quickly.
0: Amen, brother. Well, we thank you for your ministry. We do look forward to that. If you guys haven't yet had a chance to watch the American gospel film and to see some of the interview with Sean and with other important voices on this issue and related issues uh, we encourage you to go ahead and watch that online. I believe it's on Netflix and uh, there's yeah, it, two parts to that as well.
1: It's actually about to come down off of Netflix. So so get it while you can mm. on Netflix.
0: There you go. Or or go straight to the source and, you know, pay them and, and support the ministry, right? But uh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Well, Sean, thank you so much for your time today. God bless you in your ministry. Thanks, brother. To get more content, go to missionspodcast.com or check out abwe.org slash podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. To ask a question or suggest a topic, email alex at missionspodcast.com. And we'll see you next time on the Missions Podcast.